Good afternoon, uh, my name is Martin Vargulis and I'm a researcher at Latvian Institute of International Affairs. And uh, on the behalf of Latvian Institute of International Affairs, I'm delighted to be the moderator of the next episode of the talk series. During this talk series, we are uh, aiming to provide a platform for uh, discussion on uh, challenges, implications, perspectives for the Baltic states in the context of the new US administration. Uh, this particular episode, we will be devoting to the security and I'm uh, pleased uh, to have uh, General Ben Hodges with us today. Uh, ben Hodges uh, is retired Lieutenant General who has uh, had a long-standing uh, high-level uh, military career in the US Army and um, he was officer as a Commander General United States Army Europe and now currently uh, he is uh, the Pershing Chair in the Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. So, uh, General uh, Hodges, it's a pleasure uh, to have you here. And I'm more, more than sure that uh, with your knowledge, experience and openness, we will have a frank and thought-provoking discussion. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for the, the privilege uh, to participate in this. I'm really grateful for that. Thank you, thank you uh, for, for joining us today. If I may, before going to the future developments, I would like to go back to the uh, previous administration and um, I would appreciate your thoughts on the legacy of the Trump administration. From security perspective, what is the post-Trump era? Uh, what, what consequences uh, and what challenges uh, are lying ahead for the Biden uh, administration from your perspective? So I think uh, probably three things. Uh, first of all, the, the, the previous administration certainly uh, raised awareness of things that the alliance, that our alliance needed to do. Um, but the, at the same time, uh, it caused damage. Uh, the, the, the approach uh, the uncertainty about American commitment to NATO, um, the, um, yeah, it was, it was uh, abusive language almost in public with some of our most important allies. Um, I think probably uh, damaged the cohesion of NATO a little bit. And, and I know, I'm sure all of your listeners know that the cohesion of NATO is ultimately the best guarantee of effective deterrence. And so while some nations may have increased defense spending because of the way the president did it, I don't actually think that was the motivation. Um, the, the key is protecting the cohesion of the alliance and for all of our allies, as well as the Kremlin, being convinced that the United States is committed. And so that's, that's the mission for the new administration. I think, uh, President Biden made that very clear last week when he spoke at the um, special edition of Munich Security Conference. Um, and, and Secretary of Defense Austin has made this very clear both in his first day on the job in the Pentagon and at the recent defense ministerials that the United States is committed to NATO as should have removed all doubt. 
Exactly. There have been uh, both critics and uh, support for the various um, uh, policies and approaches implemented by Trump administration. One of those, and you already touched upon, was the defense spending. Uh, the way one of the arguments, uh, supportive arguments for the Trump administration was that he stimulated uh, the increase of the, the defense spending uh, by European allies. And we see in the real numbers, it, it, it really was the case. Um, overall, and taking you to the, 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 the amount that has been increased uh, and in the defense spending, uh, how uh, alliance has evolved, how it, um, how it helped to strengthen particular capabilities, uh, how we use those, um, uh, the money uh, allocated for defense uh, wisely. So, look, the, the, the idea or the importance of burden sharing, um, that issue has been out there since President Truman was the American president. So this is always going to be a topic and, and it's, it's fair for it to be a topic. Um, but I think that it's important to keep in mind that uh, the, the uh, alliance that members began to increase defense spending going back to 2014 after the Wales summit. And so, you know, who, who deserves credit for it going up um, is less important than are we in fact in increasing our capability and our capacity and are we uh, improving the readiness of our forces as well as the readiness, the, the resilience of our societies. That's, that's what's really uh, most, most important in my view. And I think Secretary General Stoltenberg deserves a lot of credit for keeping the Alliance um, together, um, but also the, the leaders in each of the nations and, and certainly uh, in uh, Latvia uh, and, and your neighbors in Estonia and Lithuania where you wake up every morning and the, and the bear is right there and you have uh, uh, historical reasons to, to uh, want to be prepared. Um, I, I think that's what is, is most important. Now, there are several things that the Alliance can do better. I think that um, the 2%, maybe we could be a little bit more sophisticated about what 2% means. Um, I am not in favor of, of getting rid of the 2% because um, that would that would that would be an admission of failure if we if we say okay it was just too hard Germany's never going to get there Canada's never going to get there uh, the Netherlands or Norway will never get there um, I think it's important to have a, a clear standard but that's not the only standard and I um, I also don't agree with some proposals I've heard that um, that you could uh, add in uh, foreign aid or development, you know, things like that. I, I think that that waters down the, the real intention of uh, investing in defense. For sure, priority number one, priority number two, and priority three should always be the readiness of what you have now. So the women and men that serve in Latvia's armed forces, for example, they should have um, the best possible equipment. They should be well-trained and all of the formations should be full. So to be ready to do their job, that's, that's the number one responsibility, I think, of the political leadership of each, of each country, whether it's Latvia or the United States or Germany or whoever. Secondly, uh, 
each nation has uh, responsibilities for its own defense. And, and I think investment in cyber protection, for example, of critical infrastructure, including transportation infrastructure, uh, your power generation infrastructure, that ought to count because everybody acknowledges that you know, got to prepare for the next war, not the last war. And everybody acknowledges that uh, the next war is going to include cyber strikes. I mean, in fact, all of us have already suffered from cyber strikes already. So then it logically, it makes sense that investment in protecting everything from cyber is the same in my mind as uh, missile defense or uh, engineers or tanks or artillery or, or, or whatever. So I, I think we could be more sophisticated in that regard. And then uh, we think about uh, what is Germany's role in the alliance? I mean, you're, you're talking about it's the leading economic power uh, in Europe. Um, it has a large Bundeswehr, um, but we don't need a, maybe we don't need more Bundeswehr but Germany has an important role to play as the logistics hub for NATO, as a transit hub to enable rapid reinforcement. So perhaps in that role, um, we need more German trains, not more German tanks. So is there a way to invest money in transport capability that helps the Alliance move quickly so that um, we can, uh, prevent a crisis from ever happening. And I, and I think the speed of movement is just as important as the size of whatever forces are there to, to convey to the Kremlin that we can move as fast or faster than Russian Federation forces so that they don't make a terrible miscalculation that they might be able to launch some sort of attack into Latvia, for example, or into Lithuania to, to cut that Sawalki corridor uh, and then hold us hostage. Thank you, Gerald, in general, for insights and, and uh, uh, sort of say military perspective, uh, fully subscribe what you just uh, said. Still on the broader uh, perspective, you already touched upon on, on the consequences uh, from the previous administration and Biden's Munich speech. Um, one of the broader implication of Trump's approach was the emerging uh, discussion on uh, European uh, strategic autonomy, right? Uh, including also developing, strengthening their own military capabilities, forces, going up to discussion to European uh, army. Um, from your perspective, from your reading, how these dynamics could uh, further evolve uh, within the context of, of new administration and taking also account the, what you said, uh, the changes, uh, the dynamics in internal dynamics in, in Germany and of course, uh, France as well. So, you know, this, this notion of strategic autonomy um, to me is a big false argument. Um, the United States has always wanted our European allies to do more. The United States cannot stop France, for example. We can't prevent France from doing anything. So, so this uh, continuous harping about we need to have European strategic, you have it. I mean, these are sovereign countries and the European Union um, gives a framework for economic strategic autonomy. Um, the United States is not the, 
the break on, uh, on what France might want to do in Africa, for example. Interestingly, um, let's just say that tomorrow morning, all the leaders of Europe woke up and said, all right, we're going to have a European army, all right, which they could do. Uh, that will not increase spending by one euro. I mean, that, that having a European army will not increase spending. Uh, secondly, the French, uh, are, the, the French and the Dutch are the oldest allies of America since, before, since the, our revolution. Um, and they've been a great ally. But for all the talk of strategic autonomy, the French could not do operations in the Sahel without American logistical support and an intelligence support. So um, there's, we're not standing in the way of this uh, idea of autonomy. What I really believe this is about is about protecting European defense industry. Um, of what the United States wants is to be able to compete. And so um, to, to kind of put it, uh, to put autonomy or to, to use the, the uh, framework of strategic autonomy, I think is not entirely honest. And I have not met too many military leaders in countries outside of France, to be candid, that are in favor of a European army or that, that seek this sort of autonomy. Um, now, the United States, I think we bear some responsibility for this uh, because we, uh, we allowed there to be doubt whether or not the United States was committed. Um, we have, I, I'm sure there have been times where um, our, our efforts to, for our defense industry to wanna compete inside Europe um, has uh, come across as in a way that um, is annoying or irritating to, to others. Uh, I think that what we really want is to be able to compete in, all, in the uh, defense industry as well as in communications or in, in other telecommunications industries uh, as well. At the end of the day, you know, the women and men in our armed forces deserve to have the best equipment. Whatever Latvia chooses, whatever Poland chooses, whatever Germany chooses. Uh, but of course, it, it's completely normal that a nation is going to protect its defense industry as much as it can because there are so many jobs associated with it, as well as uh, to a degree uh, for self-reliance. Self now, uh, I think the new administration has made it clear, uh, again, commitment to NATO. Number two, that the administration wants to work with the European Union in a way that's significantly different from the previous administration, that uh, we don't see the EU as the enemy. It's an economic competitor, but also an economic partner. And it's also a diplomatic partner. Um, when we, when the president talks about the long-term strategic challenges, of course, China represents that largest uh, long-term strategic challenge for the United States and frankly, for all of us. And so uh, there's a recognition that we've got to work closely with our European uh, allies and friends in the diplomatic domain and the economic domain, as well as in the military domain, so that we can um, compete more effectively with what 
China does with its illegal technology uh, thefts, its uh, lack of transparency, uh, government money, uh, the creation of debt traps, um, these kinds of things. This is not a. This is not about making Europeans choose between China or the United States. This is about the United States realizing we've got to work closely with our partners and allies. Finally, um, the the new administration has acknowledged uh, and will continue to act this way that we don't have the capacity. I think Secretary Austin said it almost exactly like this. We don't have the capacity to do everything that we have to do by ourselves to contain uh, or deter Chinese aggression, to deter the Kremlin, to contain Iran, uh, to protect the global commons that everybody depends on that the U.S. has always helped protect um, and, and deal with all the other I issues that are out there uh, fighting Islamic extremism. We can't do it by ourselves. We need allies. And it's becoming increasingly clear that we need a strong European pillar, not a European pillow, um, to continue to de deter Russia, the Kremlin, if we become fixed in the Indo-Pacific region. Probably one of the best deterrence uh, messages is to have uh, force uh, allied troops on our soil. And one of those um, discussions also in the previous administration, and we see with the, with the new administration, it, it has changed, I mean, U.S. true presence in Europe. Uh, from your perspective, uh, should U.S. increase true presence in Europe? And uh, follow up to this one, uh, true presence in the Baltic region. We know that U.S., is, a lot of troops are stationed uh, in, 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 in Poland. How about Baltics? You already mentioned this A2AD scenario, uh, importance of Suwalki corridor and to have troops on this side of Suwalki. Um, can you please elaborate, elaborate uh, on, on this one? Yeah, sure. So after uh, Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine, the United States quickly deployed uh, some uh, soldiers to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland at the invitation of our allies um, to demonstrate both to our allies, to provide assurance to our allies, but also to the Kremlin that, look, we're, we're going to protect our allies. And, and the clearest signal of that is putting American soldiers on the ground, literally boots on the ground. Um, so that, that was exactly the right step to take in those... Uh, in those early days. Now, um, as the Alliance reacted, and, and I think uh, what we saw coming out of the NATO summit in Warsaw, I mean, very fast action to deploy enhanced forward presence battle groups, for example, to the British-led in Estonia, the Canadian-led battle group in Latvia, the uh, German-led battle group in Lithuania, and then the American-led battle group in Poland. Uh, I think that was the next correct step because, again, um, yes, American presence is significant. There, there's no denying that. And I want there to be American presence in every country along NATO's eastern flank. Um, but I think it's also important that the alliance is present and, and in a cohesive way. So it made sense to me that once the battle groups were deployed, 
And now you've got flags from almost every NATO country are in the Baltic states. Um, that is such a powerful um, representation of commitment that you, I mean, you've got soldiers from Southern Europe as well, not just uh, Central and uh, Eastern Europe. So um, that was, was powerful enough to me that I thought, okay, we, we don't need to have uh, so many American soldiers in each of these countries because partly there's a capacity. I mean, how much training area do you have um, to, to maintain a level of readiness? Uh, and also to, uh, to, for allies to trust NATO, to put trust in the alliance. So I, I thought that was very important. Still, you know, in Lille Varda, we have an American uh, aviation unit that's there all the time. Uh, we have an American logistics unit in uh, Lithuania. It's not many, but there are American soldiers that are there all the time. What I would prefer to see when what we really need are uh, what we call enablers, logistics, uh, transport, uh, communications, uh, intelligence infrastructure. That sort of framework from Estonia to Bulgaria, all the way through, uh, because that's the slowest to move. The fastest things to move are the infantry, the armor, and, and so on. It's the other stuff, getting that in place, and air defense, by the way. That's what takes the most time. So I would like to see that uh, increased in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, as well as uh, Bulgaria. Poland and Romania, of course, are where most of the ground troops are already located. I would also like to see uh, pre-position of ammunition, of uh, stocks that would be needed because this stuff is, it's hard to move. It's slow and hard to move. Now, there's some risk when you do that. You could lose it um, in a strike, but I think that would uh, accelerate the, uh, the speed with which, with which we move. Um, another thing that we, we really need to do is, uh, I think, improve the intelligence sharing um, in the region. Uh, people in Finland, Estonia, Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Poland will know more about what's happening in Russia than uh, any American will ever know because of proximity. Um, if there's a crisis, it won't be an American satellite that determines it's happening. It's going to be somebody on the ground that's reading and, and watching and, and, uh, and it might probably won't even be a military person. It'll be somebody else that uh, sees and feels that. That's that's what we've got to get to. So and that's not five eyes. I mean, this is this is outside of five eyes. So if I could encapsulate this in a simple framework of what's needed, it's all about speed, speed of recognition, speed of decision, and speed of assembly. Okay, speed of recognition, something's happening. So then decision makers at every level can start taking steps to start movement. And that's how we prevent the crisis. Those are the kind of things that are needed in Baltic countries. Definitely right. Definitely rightly pointed that uh, as a frontline states, uh, as a neighboring countries, we fully understand what's going on uh, along our border. And we see the 
we observe high-level uh, military activities, we see the ambition, we, we saw what happened in Ukraine, Georgia, so on and so forth. And therefore, uh, Kremlin respects uh, uh, strength and power, and the U.S. can, can be uh, the one who can really uh, provide uh, uh, different kind of uh, stimulus and impact uh, to overall regional balance, right? Uh, but from the Baltic perspective and uh, taking into account your experience and knowing the region uh, from your perspective, what should Baltic states do? I mean, in the next, what are the critical aspects to be developed in the, in the next following uh, years uh, and in cooperation maybe with the, with the U.S. and new administration? So uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, continue doing what you're doing now of, of making yourself indigestible. All right, this, you know, the Finns candidly are probably the best um, in, in, uh, in the region of making themselves indefensible, uh, indigestible, excuse me. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you, you don't have enough population and resources to maintain a large enough force to, to be on defense all the time. It's, it's just not feasible. So you have to make yourself um, that it would be so painful for Russian forces to come in there in any form um, that they that they don't want to do that, or else it would take so long that at least you're buying time now for your friends and allies to arrive. So that's that's not just military; that's the whole of society. That's about making people um, take ownership of this. Um, it's also about hardening uh, infrastructure. I've talked about cyber already, uh, protecting energy, uh, those kind of things. That's, that's number one. Number two, uh, and I will be candid, I don't know that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania cooperate with each other as, as well as they should. I think there's competition in a variety of different things. And, and look, I'm not naive. Um, you're talking about... Uh, three different histories, three different languages, three different ethnicities almost. I mean, that are, um, even though in the West, we tend to say the three Bs, you know, the Baltic states, as if they're like Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, you know, it's all just kind of the same. And it's not, and I, I, I didn't realize that until I had the chance to serve with soldiers from all those countries and spend so much time in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the differences. And I, I think uh, more cooperation uh, is needed to help each other. And, and what I saw recently from the uh, Estonian uh, chief of defense, um, the idea of uh, creating a, a 360 degree sort of bubble around Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, where they're, where they're literally interlocking fires, we would call it, where if Estonia was attacked, that Latvia would have the capability to, to, to be able to hit targets inside Estonia to protect Estonia. That sort of cooperation, I think, is, is exactly what is needed. Um, look, it's, it's each nation's choice to, to purchase whatever equipment they want to have or weapon systems or, or whatever. Uh, and and you, all, you always have to make tough choices um, because there's always competition for budget. But the more, the more places where you could cooperate and have the same, whether we're talking about vehicles or air defense or uh, those, those kinds of capabilities, um, it's more efficient. 
frankly, when you, when you can cooperate. Um, also, I would say uh, the uh, air defense, air and missile defense. Um, Lithuania has purchased the uh, NASAMs, for example. Um, I think uh, Estonia and Latvia need to need to figure out what they can afford in terms of air and missile defense to protect your civilian population as well as critical infrastructure. Germany and the Netherlands should take on the responsibility for the, the higher altitude air and missile defense. To me, this is this this is another form of burden sharing. Um, is is to take on take on that. Poland um, is increasing its uh, air and missile defense capability, but it's got a lot to do to protect itself. I think Germany um, should should take on a leading role to help provide this air and missile defense over uh, Baltic countries. The the last recommendation I'd make is um, the part of this. 360 degree bubble that the Estonian chief defense talked about um, out into the, into the Baltic sea itself. Um, it's, it's not realistic to expect uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to, to, to have a large Navy. It's, it's not feasible. It's can't afford it. Uh, it's not, but it's not what's needed. It, it is needed to have the ability to, to detect uh, prevent Russian submarines from operating inside your waters. Uh, to to detect and uh, deactivate uh, underwater mines, for example. So having a maritime component to your this uh, 360 degree bubble is important. And there are a lot of unmanned systems that are becoming available now. This the U.S. Navy is putting a lot of money into this. All the navies of NATO are doing this. Most of them are. Um, I, I would recommend, uh, and I'm an Army infantry soldier, so this, this is new to me, but as I, the more I study it, the more I realize this is something that's affordable. And, I, you know, as, as I'm, I keep looking at my map and uh, I said, wow, wouldn't it be great if uh, Estonia and Latvia, for example, were to combine uh, resources to, to conduct anti-submarine more capabilities and uh, anti-mine capabilities be much more affordable that way. Uh, well, thank you for this uh, kind of critical but uh, also realistic uh, thoughts uh, on uh, Baltic cooperation. Definitely, it's costly, but uh, we cannot do by ourselves alone. But uh, there is a place for and room for uh, <coughs> strengths and cooperation, especially when it comes to the uh, common procurement. But uh, to, to conclude, um, on, again, on the broader perspective, uh, on the arms uh, control, arms, arms regimes, um, we know that uh, START has been extended for another five years, but several other regimes like Vienna Document, INF, Open Skies Treaty have lost their uh, relevance. Um, are we back in the arms race? And uh, taking into account uh, Biden's approach, knowing his, uh, his policy, security policy, uh, what's your vision? How this uh, particular dynamics will evolve? Well, I have to say I was very happy that the uh, administration um, was able to get an extension on the new start. Um, I, I think that's important for a couple reasons. One, it does... Uh, 
help uh, provide some control, uh, but it also sends a signal that the United States is not just about uh, military force, but that we also were interested in arms control. And I think that was an important signal to our European allies that uh, that this this is important and that we want to get back into that. But um, there's a reason that the Trump administration walked away from so many of these uh, other protocols. I wish they hadn't. I thought those were mistakes, but there is a reason to it. It's because they all um, had problems uh, especially the fact that the Russian Federation did not comply. They, they violated every one of these things over and over. And to be candid, most of our European allies knew that the Kremlin was doing this. And yet there was no pressure on the Kremlin to, to live up to it. And I'm talking especially from uh, Germany and France. Uh, those are the two countries that probably have the most leverage on the Kremlin. And they didn't, and they didn't use it to cause the Kremlin to live up uh, to their obligations. And so that's why the Trump administration chose to walk away. Again, I think that's the wrong approach. Uh, I think we're much better leading rather than leaving uh, these kinds of organizations because they do mean a lot to our, to especially the European allies. So um, I hope that we'll get back into open skies. Um, I, um, the INF treaty, I'm not sure about this. Uh, the problem with INF, of course, is not only that the Russians were not compliant, um, they had long, been a long time in violation, but the Chinese uh, are a factor. And so uh, we've got to figure out a way to, to uh, either get the Chinese to participate, and so far they've flat out said no way. Uh, they have no desire to participate in something like that unless the United States basically comes down, uh, reduces significantly. Um, so that's, that's part of the challenge is how, how do you take into account China uh, and, its, uh, and its growth of, of capabilities? At the end of the day, um, for any of these arms control mechanisms to work, you've got to have uh, transparency and there's got to be a strict compliance protocol and so uh, this is where I think leadership by uh, Germany and France, but also Canada and uh, UK um, that can put pressure on um, the Kremlin to live up to international agreement um, is going to be very important. And I think that's what the Biden administration is going to do. They're going to work closely with allies and say, look, you, you have got to put pressure on the Kremlin to act like a responsible member of international uh, community. Well, great and great to hear that, that uh, the new administration will, uh, will uh, work closely with the, with the European allies in, in this uh, uh, particular um, issue. So thank you, General, for uh, indeed, it was a thought-provoking discussion, uh, realistic uh, uh, and, and uh, very topical uh, um, issues you just uh, mentioned. Uh, for the audience, please stay tuned in for the, for the last uh, um, episode of this talk series that will be devoted more to the uh, international uh, politics, uh, values, norms uh, related issues. Thank you.